text this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen where it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presents with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod going to search the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. I find Christmas manger scenes weird. Does anybody think that's weird? Anybody? I find it weird. I tell you why. Mary has just given birth for crying out loud. I've been in a room where a woman has given birth three times. And I can tell you, they do not look cool, calm, collected afterwards. Joseph is also very cool, calm, collected, which I also find weird. Imagine what's swirling in his mind. And what he had just been told. And then there's baby Jesus, of course, perfectly combed hair. <laughs> Arms stretching out like he's about to belt out a song. I look at the manger scene and I ask, where's the blood? Where's the sweat? Where are the tears? Where's the pain? We've sanitized it. We've romanticized it. We've left out the messy parts. 
we have. Because if this was the real scene, Mary would be freaking out right about now. Joseph would be also freaking out about right now. There would be, oh my God, what now? Parts of the manger scene. There would be, I am in so much pain, I don't know what to do. But we've sanitized Christmas. We've sanitized the Christmas story. But Matthew won't do that. Matthew will not sanitize the Christmas story for you and me. Matthew tells you and me about Herod. Matthew tells you and me about innocent children being murdered. And parents wailing. And their cries being heard throughout the city. And the reason why Matthew does that is because, listen carefully, if you screen out the Herods, you miss the point of Christmas. If you sanitize the messy, dirty, painful parts of Christmas, you miss the entire point of the Christmas story. And I remind you and me of this every year. And if this is the first time you're hearing it, I'm so glad that you're here. You need to know that the essence of the Christmas story and the essence of Christianity doesn't skirt the pain, the mess, the murder of innocence and a dictator on the throne who is about evil and injustice. You screen that out. You miss the point of Christmas because here's the point of Christmas. You ready? The point of Christmas is that the creator God enters into our world, the real world of pain and tears and mess and evil and injustice to bring redemption and healing in the midst of it. Is that good news to anybody? The real story of Christmas is not, oh, the real point of Christmas is that you cannot find peace, joy, You cannot find peace, joy, and love if you sanitize and skirt the hard, difficult, sometimes the harsh things of life. Because the whole point of Christmas is that on this day, a Savior, for crying out loud, was born. And he stared at death, evil, injustice, and sin, and the messy parts of life, and conquered it via his life, death, and resurrection. And because of that, evil will not have the last word. Because of that, injustice will not have the last word. Because of that, Taliban, who walked into a school this week and murdered 134 kids, they will not have the last word. ISIS will not have the last word. Evil dictators will not have the last word. Oh, our sin, our mistakes, our mess will not have the last word. Is this good news? You and I need to enter into the Christmas story and understand what the world was like. I don't know about you, but I find it amazing news that if God was willing to enter into a messy manger, then I could hope that God is willing to enter into my messy life. Begin the story, we begin with Herod. How do you, if you're Caesar Augustus and you've conquered lands, And peoples, and they live hundreds and thousands of miles away. How do you rule them? Here's what you did. According to Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, 
There was a long-standing Roman policy to employ kings among instruments of servitude. So they enter and conquer a land, and they find a puppet king, and they say, you rule on our behalf. Do as we tell you. We keep you under our thumb, you keep them under your thumb, and we're all good. In Palestine, they found this guy. This is actually an actor. <laughs> I think it was uh, the Bible in, in a, a history channel. This is what actually he really looked like. Herod is a very complex character. Let me tell you about Herod. Racially, he's an Arab. His family is from a land called Idumea. And that's where his family is from, the Idumeans. But religiously, he's a Jew. Why? In the year 135 B.C., Jewish ruler named Hyrcanus conquers the Edomans and enforces them to become Jews. And eventually he puts Herod's grandfather named Antipater, the elder, governor of the province. So Herod grows up Jewish, religiously. Culturally, Herod is Greek. By this time, people speak Greek as the language throughout the world and the international community. Greek is Herod's first language, and Herod is noted for various attempts to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. And politically, of course, he's a Roman. Let me take you through several uh, dimensions of Herod's reign. He was a fierce warrior. Here is a real depiction of an artist. Herod is a warrior. He besieges Jerusalem in 37 B.C. with a huge army of 11 battalions of infantry. And 6,000 cavalry. And when the troops poured into Jerusalem, wholesale massacre occurs. This according to Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century. For the Jews of Herod's army were determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in alleys of houses. So Herod goes into Jerusalem and the first thing he does is murders and butchers people. If you're the Jews, do you like Herod? Answer is no. Other things that he did that didn't endear him to the Jewish people. He did two things. He sets up statues of Caesar all over. Why? He wants to make sure that he's in Caesar's good terms. So that he statues of Caesar all over Palestine where God's people who are told don't have any other gods before me. And don't make graven images of any other gods before me. Are forced to see statues of Caesar. This right here is a depiction of the seal of the Roman Empire. And Herod puts this at the gate of the entrance to the temple of God. So here are God's people. Every time they walk into the temple of God, they're forced and reminded that they worship an emperor just to humiliate them. In the first century, a man named Matthias gathers a group of his friends and walks up and tears it down. What does Herod do? He publicly gathers them and massacres and slaughters them. This is how Herod keeps his rule. You get out of line, we'll kill you. We'll kill you. Herod is known for his building projects. There's a legend that said the King David, when he had been fleeing from King Saul for his life, hit out on this rock outcropping, which was called the Masada. Let me show you a picture. This is where legend said that King David hid out when he was being pursued by Saul. So Saul, so Herod decides, if that's where your greatest king hid out, I am going to build a temple and live in luxury where your famous king hid out. So he builds a three-story <laughs> palace on Masada. 
a three-story palace on Masada so that he could live in luxury. He had apparently hot and cold baths as well as hot tubs installed in his palace. There are pipes installed on the floor that circulated warm air. These are, by the way, real pictures. He builds a palace, hot tubs. He also hires artists from Italy where he uh, he imports marble columns and he paints frescoes on the walls as well as individual marble tiles. On top of the roof, Herod builds a pool. I wish I had pictures of that to show you. Question is, where does he get his water supply? From 17 miles away in Jerusalem, he builds these channels along the side of the mountains where water can be redirected to his palace. He is literally rebuilding the desert. Oh, he does this, drinking water. He had a giant cistern dug on the bottom of Masada. And historians say one rainfall could capture enough rain for 10,000 people for 10 years. He finds a way to store figs and dates and food. In the 1960s, a group of archaeologists go to Masada and they found remnants. It's 2,000 years old. Herod decides he wants to build a city-of-the-art Greek city along the coast. Problem is, the coastline is all swampy and you can't really build anything. But he knows he can make a lot of money if he could redirect shipping routes. So he built the coastline and called the city Caesarea. Caesarea. In Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea. And he asks disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? These are locations and scenes that people are familiar with. By the way, where did he get the name from? The biggest brown noser in the world. I think I'll name it Caesarea, after Caesar. And this city, he decides to build a harbor. The largest harbor in the world at the time is 60 acres in Athens. So Herod says, I'm going to build on 520 acres. Herod used a special concrete at the time that only Romans knew. And he pours this concrete 60 feet down and 100 feet underneath water. And he builds a state-of-the-art harbor. There's a legendary story that the city had been built. And Herod is sailing back from Rome. It's at nighttime. He looks out and he goes, it's not beautiful enough. I want the entire city covered in marble. So they did. Cover the entire city in marble. This is actually a picture. You can't really see it in the dark where you can still find shards of marble 2,000 years later. By the way, where do you get fresh water from? 19 miles away in Jerusalem. He built this aqueduct. And historians say the aqueduct, every meter it went felt a centimeter. It's perfectly aligned. 19 miles away, he's bringing drinking water for his city. In 19 B.C. begins a massive Jewish temple rebuilding program and a way to curry favor with the Jewish people. So he had a temple mount enlarged. This is a depiction from an artist. He hires over 18,000 people to rebuild this temple mount. And they're using 10 foot by 10 foot by 80 foot stones. They weigh tons. But historians say that as the temple has been built, not a sound was heard of the chisel. Which means they had to chisel these stones and transport them. From somewhere. This is Herod's reign. He decides that he's going to build a palace in between Jerusalem and his home country of Edom. Exactly halfway, he called the new palace the Herodium. Here's the problem. Where he wants to build Herodium, there is no mountain. Why is that important? Because he wants his palace to be the highest and most visible. So he had a mountain built. 
This is what it looks like today. And one day Jesus is standing and he's looking at from the Mount of Olives, the Herodium and the Dead Sea behind it. And he says this. You have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have any faith small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Do you see what Herod is? Jesus is saying, you think Herod is powerful because he could move mountains. Then he says this. Truly I tell you, if you have faith, and not doubt. You can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Are you getting? Jesus says, you think Herod is powerful because he's moving mountains. I'm about to bring about a kingdom where you, if you belong to it, what Herod does will seem like child's play. Are you with me? Herod's personal life. Herod has 11 wives and 43 kids. He becomes suspicious of one of his wives. And when he's going on a business trip, he says to one of his assistants, I'm suspicious. If I die, execute her. He comes back from the trip. Finds out the assistant told his wife. And she seems a little distant. I wonder why. He becomes suspicious that one of his sons is plotting against him. Historians say he had his son drowned in the family pool. Two other sons, he's suspicious of two other sons that they're willing to overthrow him. And historians paint the scene where he brings him out in front of all of his attendants. And they're pleading for their life and they're saying, Father, we didn't do it. Father, we are not. He slaughters them anyway. This is Herod's reign and rule. At one point, he had a dispute with the governing body of the Jewish people, the religious elites, and he executes them all. Near the end of his life, he gathers the most influential people, Jews, into the Hippodrome in Jericho, which is a big stadium. He has the stadium filled with the most influential Jews. And he says to soldiers, lock the gates, lock the doors. And he says, when I die, I want you to slaughter everybody in this room so that when I die, there will be guaranteed that there will be mourning at my funeral. According to Josephus, Herod was cruel to all alike, one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. What is life like for an average person? Herod lives in the city of Jerusalem where he rules with absolute authority, controls everything. He controls the religious establishment. High priests don't do what he tells them. He murders them. He also controls the economic system. 89% of the people live in the city, but 80 to 90% of the food that is provided for people are coming from the farmland. Most of Jesus' stories are about fishing and vineyards and fertile soil. Vast majority of the people are in these everyday jobs, peasants working to feed a small group of halves in the city. We know from the New Testament that people are living under heavy taxation. Some say 80 to 90 percent of taxation. Herod takes 25 to 30% of the grain and 50% of the fish. So you're a fisherman, everyday fisherman. And after a long, hard night of work, you come to the shore. And Herod has one of his men called Teloni, otherwise called tax collector. And he says, thank you. Two for Herod, one for me, one for you. Barely feed your family. You're a farmer. Work for hard harvest year round. And at the end of the harvest, one of his 
tax collectors come and say, three bushels for Herod, two bushels for me, one for you. People are going into massive debt because they can no longer keep farming and keep paying taxes. Mary's husband Joseph is a what? He's a carpenter. Why? He's lost his family land. He has to find jobs wherever he can go. So Jesus says, let me teach you how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. People are starving. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. People are going deeper and deeper into debt. This is Herod's reign. The haves are getting wealthier and wealthier. And the poor are starving. The system politically, economically is favoring towards the rich, the powerful, and the haves. So let me ask you a question as you begin the transition. Do you think it was good news that at his inaugural sermon, Jesus comes proclaiming, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Is this good news? Is this good news? Imagine if you're one of the 90% living under Herod's reign. Do you hear the context and see the context? The Jews believe that they're God's people. So what kicked in at this time is a profound sense of, some of you can relate, despair. To living in a world where Herod is king and he rules with brutality and absolute authority. Oppression, injustice, marginalization, violence are normal in everyday part of life. So the question that everybody is asking in Palestine in first century is, is Herod always going to rule? Is life always going to be this unfair? And despair gives birth to doubt. Anybody been there? God, if you're so good, then why is an unjust lunatic still on the throne? God, if you're so good, why do you allow that? God, if you're so good, why do some people seem to get more and more? Some people struggle to get by. God, if you're good, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? God, if you're so good, I'm here trying to do the right thing. Anybody been there? If you're good, where are you? God, if you're good, then why are tyrants and dictators still allowed to get away with injustice? They're starving. God, if you're so good, then why famine? God, if you're so good, why cancer? I'm only 35. God, if you're so good, why AIDS? There are questions, your questions this morning. God, if you're so good, why do you allow stuff like this? God, if you're so good, why one tyrant regime after another to understand the Christmas story is to enter into a group of people, you guys, who are just waiting and waiting and waiting Asking and asking and asking and waiting and waiting and waiting, saying, God, will you intervene? It's at this point that the revolutionary message of Christmas comes through. Because what is the question of the Magi? Where? 
is the king of the Jews. Okay. See, I did a terrible job up until this point. Because what would have been their response when they heard those questions? Where is the king of the Jews? What are they saying? What are they saying? Matthew's asking you and me, who's king? Who is king? Is Herod king? Or this baby? Are you with me? Is Herod king? Or is this baby? Who's king? Is wealth king? Is power king? Who's king? What is Matthew saying? Matthew is saying the clock is ticking on Herod. A new king is on the way. To usher in a new kingdom. Is that good news? (laughs) Matthew is asking, what, whose government? Herod's government? Herod's government? It's time for a change. A new government is on the way. For to us a child is born and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice, righteousness from that time forever. Matthew is saying A new king is on the scene to usher in a new kingdom. What is Jesus' message? The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? If you die, you'll go to heaven? Heavens, no. The good news is a new king is on the scene and his reign is not about oppression, injustice, and violence. His reign is not about taking advantage of the weak. His reign is about peace and love and righteousness. His reign is not about crushing people, it's loving people. His reign is not about favoring the powerful, but it's about favoring the marginalized and the weak. His reign, his reign His reign is not entered by your pedigree, by your family, by your wealth, by your power. His reign is entered through faith, by grace. And that means anyone can come. Is that good news? A world in which they're saying, I want to enter the reign, but I don't have connections, network power. Jesus says, the pimps, the prostitutes, the have-nots. I've made a mess of my life. I'm so broken that I don't know if I can do anything. Jesus says, it's good news for all people. Because this kingdom you enter through faith by grace. Can I get an amen? This was good news for all people. Christmas story asked, where's your hope? Is your hope in a government ruled by an earthly king? Or is your hope in a kingdom ruled by a king that will last forever and ever and ever? Herod died. His son died. His son died. Herod's rule, pile of rocks and pictures in his storybook. But the kingdom of God keeps going and going and going. Can I get an amen? Is this good? Good Lord, you guys. His kingdom keeps going, going, and going. 
How is this Christmas story about hope? Is there anybody here this morning wondering, can God do something about the mess that is my life? Can I get an amen? If the Son of God of the universe was born in a dirty manger, there is no mess in our lives that God is not willing to step into. Is anybody here wondering, does God care? Does God really care? Does God see? I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to wrap my mind after 20-some years of being a Christian of how an infinite, eternal God took on flesh and bone. And he enters into a real world of pain, tears, and suffering, culminating on the cross. How can we and your friends and your family who live in a real world of pain, sweat, and tears believe in a God who is immune to pain? But the Christmas story reminds us that our God put his immunity to pain aside. And he entered a world of pain, tears, and suffering. He cares. Is anybody here wondering, Peter, how long will injustice last? How long will evil win? How long will unjust rulers continue to reign? The Christmas story reminds us that 2,000 years ago, a king ushering a new kingdom has come. And that means that evil will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. AIDS, cancer, our sins will not have the last word. The king who sits on the throne, who is going to come back that we wait for, he will have the last word. Therefore, say this with me. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So if you are sitting here today and you're tempted to give up hope, you're tempted to give in to cynicism, hopelessness, may you be reminded today that the kingdom of God means that the future has invaded the present. And the rule and reign of God that we long for, that we wait for, of peace, justice, and love, and reconciliation with God, that he is coming one day to bring his rule and reign and finish it here on earth. That means that God says, we don't just sit around and wait. And this is a challenge for some of you and me. God says, I want you to join me. I'm on the move. I want you to join me. So giving glory to God in the highest doesn't end with the song. But giving glory to God in the highest ends with us walking out of these doors into the world. So that giving glory to God in the highest involves bringing peace and justice on earth. Amen. That as we praise God passionately and worship him with our hearts, it leads us to live our lives and pouring out our lives sacrificially, joining with God, partnering with God in his kingdom, rule, and reign on earth. Amen. How is this about you? So you see, I'm almost done. Come on up. How is this about you and me? I'll tell you how it's about you and me. Imagine I don't come and say, hey, by the way, isn't it great news that a personal savior of the world has been born? No, because if that was the case, everybody would have said, great, let's go. 
Her message was what? The king. The king has come. When a king lands in a land where there is another king claiming kingship, there's going to be war. Jesus comes claiming king. When you and I invite Jesus into our hearts and our lives, there's a part of our hearts that will fight. Not on his offer of salvation, but on his challenge of kingship. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You knew I was going to come around to this. So the question that I ask you and me is, who is king in your life? Jesus didn't just come saying, come to me all you weary, I'll give you rest. He said that. But he also said what? Deny yourself, carry the cross and follow me. He also said what? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do everything I tell you? He also said what? You want to find your life? Lose it for my sake. Jesus didn't come as a personal Savior saying, you have problems, I'll just meet it. You have needs, I'll give. He came, say with me, claiming to be king. That means he could demand anything. That means a relationship with him is all encompassing and limitless. That means for those of us that have bought into this myth that says, when I become a Christian, my life gets better. And by better, it means my life goes on as scheduled, and you just come along and help. How many of us, be honest, at the end of 2014 have made a mess of things because we said, Jesus, come into my life and help me with my agenda instead of submitting our kingship to him. Anybody? Jesus is not interested in coming and helping you manage your kingdom. He wants to be your Lord. Well, I don't want to be a Christian then. Really? Really? I just want to control my own life. Really? Really? How's that going? How's that going? Let's be honest. How's that going? You're saying, I'm going to control my own life. I'm my own king, captain of my ship. I, how's that going? Am I talking to any um, failed kings out there who made a mess of their kingdoms because of our incompetence? Anybody? Life doesn't work if Jesus comes in to manage your affairs. Life only works when we say, your king, command me. Who's king? You? Me? See, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that there are some of us in here today, and you walked in, Peter, what does it mean to be a Christian? I'll tell you exactly what it means to be a Christian in one minute, and then I'm done. I'll tell you what it means to be a Christian. If you've been to an AA meeting, you do two things. You say your name, and you say what you are. That begins a process of healing. That means today, 
being a Christian means, hi, my name is Peter, and I'm here because I'm a failed king. It's not very good at ruling my own kingdom. there's anybody sitting here today and you wonder I don't know if I'm a Christian or not being a Christian means first and foremost coming and acknowledging and admitting who we are and who we are is sinner that have been in charge of our own lives that have relegated God to the margins and said I'm going to be my own king I'm going to do my own life my family my career I'm going to do it my way and when we come to that point of saying I can't do it anymore I don't have the ability. I'm not even that smart. I don't. We come to that place of brokenness. We come to that place of helplessness. We come to that place of rigorous honesty where we say, I can't do it anymore. It's that place that God says, now we're ready. So if you're sitting here today, my friend, and you're willing to admit to God, God, It's not just that I've done some things. It's that I've been in control of my own life and have lived my life as the captain of my own ship. But I'm done with that because I can't do it anymore. I made a mess of things. God, will you come and be king? Will you come into my life and be Lord? The Bible says it's at that time that God's ready and willing to come in. And extend grace. And you know what grace is? Grace says, even though you've made mistakes and you've made a mess, grace says, you are not a mistake and you are not a sum total of your mess. Grace says, you are somebody that I can come in, redeem, heal, and restore. So bow your heads with me. This morning, as we conclude this service, if there's anybody sitting here right now, Christian or not, anybody sitting here right now, as we close out 2014, and you know that he's not your king, you are. You're your own king. You're your own Lord. You're your own master. If there's anybody here who made out a mess of things because you've done life your way, being in control of your own life, and today you're willing to say, I'm done with that, God. I can't do it anymore. There's an invitation given to you, and that is, let me come and be your king. Let me come and be your Lord. Let me come. All he requires is surrender and acknowledgement of your inability. Does anybody sitting here tempted to give in to fatalism and cynicism? And we've basically said, God, I don't think you could change our world. I don't think you could change our city. I don't know you could change my family, my marriage. Anybody tempted to give in to this cynicism, may you be reminded that on this day, a king has been born ushering in a new kingdom and perhaps our response is to say God forgive me for my lack of faith for my cynicism allowing my heart to grow cold and hard I need you I need you
I believe that he's here and he's speaking. Respond to him. Respond to him. I need you. I want you. I need you. I submit to you. I surrender to you. I yield to you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.